But with that, we're going to be continuing our study tonight in 1 Peter. A couple weeks ago, we, we got all the way through verse 1 of chapter 1 as we looked at the life of Peter, you know, um, who he was, his foundation for, for living. And tonight, we're going to be moving all the way through verse 2, all right? So I know, I know we're going fast, um, but what we're going to be talking about, ironically enough, pardon the pun, is, is building on the foundation that we established two weeks ago and really looking at attaching ourselves to the foundation. Um, every single one of us as Christians, we're building our lives day by day, decision by decision, moment by moment, right? The process of building our lives is, is, is made up of all the decisions we make. Every moment of every day, we have the opportunity to, to decide to obey God or to disobey God. We have the opportunity to decide to, to do what glorifies his name or to do something that dishonors his name. Um, like we looked at a couple weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 1.1, we learned about the only sure foundation that really is, is worth us building our lives on. That foundation is Jesus Christ, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul said, No one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If there was ever a life verse, if you're like, I need a life verse and I don't have one, I would just say pick that one because it is great. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians there, Paul goes on to talk about, you know, if we build on any other foundation, if we build on a foundation of gold or silver or stones, wood, hay, stubble, anything else, we will ultimately be disappointed in this life because anything but Jesus Christ will ultimately fail and ultimately let us down. And then we saw, true, uh, saw also that Peter isn't the foundation that the church was built on, as, as some believe and some faith traditions teach, but, but it's Jesus. He's the one that the church was built on. He is the foundation that the church is built on. He is the foundation that we, his people, his kids, build our lives upon. And so tonight as we look at verse 2, um, we're going to learn some sturdy truths that bolt us down into that foundation. You know, before 1958, homes that were built in America were not required to be bolted down to their foundations. I didn't know that. And, um, you know, back during those times, apparently, homes that were in earthquake zones, mudslide zones, flood zones, um, often would be washed right off their foundations when the disasters came. And then after 1958, there was this thing called the Universal Building Code that was kind of put out, and, and it kind of went nationwide, and it said no matter what state you're in, um, homes uh, are required, among other things in this code, but homes are required to be attached to the foundation so that when the storms come, they don't get knocked over. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, the bolts, the braces, the, the brackets, if you will, that attach us to our foundation that is Jesus Christ, the things that we build our life with, the things that attach us to Christ, that, that, that secure us to that foundation. Like I said, the bolts, the braces, and the brackets are the truths we find in God's word, those non-negotiable truths, because God word, God's word isn't a document of negotiation, which some of us treat it that way, unfortunately, sometimes, you know? And I, I'm guilty of that, too. There's times where... You know, there's something that I'm just not vibing with. I'm like, mm, you know, I'm going to try and negotiate with the Lord about it. But, but we don't have a place to negotiate. God's word is final. 
God's word is authoritative. And the truths we find in his word are the very things that keep us bolted close to Jesus Christ. And so in this letter that Simon, who became Peter the Apostle, this letter that he writes, this man who was commissioned and then failed miserably and then was recommissioned as a representative of Jesus Christ, he opens up his letter with some very deep theological truths. Very deep theological truths. And I believe he does this because as he was writing this letter to his readers, um, I think what was in his head is, is, is really this. What we think about God, about who he is, determines what we think about everything else in our life. What we think about who God is determines how we're going to think about everything. If you have a wrong view of God, you're going to have wrong views in life. If you have uh, wrong views in your life, it's going to lead to ultimately to wrong living, right? Um, it's going to lead to wrong stances on positions that, that are contrary to the word of God. And so it's really important that, that what we think about God is, is grounded in the truth of Scripture. And so theology is essential, to living an obedient life that glorifies God. Um, so Peter gets right into these deep theological truths because they're important truths. And as I said, I believe these truths that he, he gets into in verse 2, right, the second verse of his letter, really are foundational to what attach us to Jesus Christ. And they allow us to stand strong and to stand victorious regardless of the storms that come around us. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your truth. We thank you, God, for theology and doctrine. We thank you, God, that, that we have this collection of, of your inspired words through, through, through leaders you raised up in your church, messed up people, <laughs> broken people, but people through your grace and mercy who were raised up to represent you in, in just really mighty and powerful ways, God. Lord, and you spoke into their lives and, and, and inspired them to write these words, God, and these are your truths that are designed to help us be the people that you're calling us to be, to live the life you're calling us to live, to, to be who you created us to be, and through your Holy Spirit sanctifying and working in our lives, God, that we would become the people to, to reach the potential that you see in us, God. Not the failures that we might see when we look in the mirror, but God, the, the victory, the success, to radically live in a way that glorifies the name of Jesus Christ, to stand strong in the storms of life, to stand strong against persecution. And so God, bless us tonight, speak to us tonight, encourage us tonight, Lord. Um, rebuke us if we need that. Lord, we're your kids, and we welcome your correction all the time. We love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to back up to verse 1. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, First Peter chapter 1. He says, to the chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, just in those two short verses, there are a lot of very interesting words. Words that carry a lot of heavy and deep meaning. You see the word chosen, the word exiles, the words foreknowledge, sanctifying, sprinkled, right? 
These are deep theological truths that Peter jumps into right away. And just here in these verses tonight, I want to look at four truths, four specific truths that, that connect us to Jesus Christ in a way that ensures our stand, ensures our victory in standing against persecution and just the trials of life. The first truth is that we're chosen by God. And we're going to unpack that. The second truth is that we are completely known by God. We're going to unpack that. The third truth is that we are constantly growing because of God. And the fourth truth is that we are increasingly blessed because of God. And so again, as a way of reminder, Peter is writing to a group of Christian believers, both Jewish and Gentile, that had been dispersed. He says to the chosen exiles that have been dispersed. That word dispersed means scattered. Right? And they were scattered all over the place in Asia Minor or what we know today as the country of Turkey. Now, it's likely and understood to be that this dispersion took place because after the resurrection of Christ and the church started to grow, the uh, ruling leadership just didn't like it. Like they thought they, they, when they crucified Christ, they were done with this Jesus thing. But it wasn't done. It kept growing and growing. And so they started to persecute people radically for believing in Jesus. Jews who were embracing Jesus as their Messiah were being persecuted and cast out of their communities and ignored and treated badly simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ as God and Savior. And so this group of believers needed to know a very important truth that, that, that especially was meant to help them endure the storms of life. And we see the truth in this phrase that he calls them. First, he calls them chosen, living as exiles. So they're chosen exiles, all right? This word exile is translated in other translations of the Bible as pilgrims, right? Pilgrims. And what this word really means um, is, is, is people that are currently living in a place that they don't ultimately belong to. That's who he's writing to. And he says, you're exiles, right? You're from somewhere else, but you're currently living here. Now, some might say, well, of course, you just said they're scattered, right? They're exiles from their homeland. I think there's a deeper meaning to it that, that as believers, that they belong to a kingdom that is not of this world, that their home is heaven, not earth, and so that they're living currently as exiles. And this is really the theme of the entire uh, letter of 1 Peter, that he talks to them as, as if they're exiles, as if they're pilgrims. And so the idea is that they're temporary residents in a place that they will eventually leave to go to their real home, right? So he opens up with, with calling them that. And, and really it's that idea that, that, that this earth, this life, um, is, is not the end all. This isn't the home for the Christian, right? This isn't the, the end all of our being and our life, we're just here temporarily. We know there's an afterlife, and there's an eternity waiting everybody. But for the believer, there's an eternity with God in heaven that awaits us. This mindset is meant to bring hope into our lives, especially when we're dealing with, with trials and persecution, right? When we're dealing with people coming against us, when we're dealing with people you know, calling you a domestic terrorist simply because you believe in the Bible, and you're like, I don't like it here. <laughs> this is terrible. And what Peter's trying to say is, it's temporary in the big picture, right? It might be hard to look at, you know, 40 to 80 years of a life as temporary, but in the picture of forever, it's but a vapor. It's temporary. And then he calls them chosen, right? Other translations translate this word elect, right? The elect of God. 
And this is the first solid truth that, that attaches us to the foundation of Jesus Christ. Like I said, we have been chosen by God. Believers, you have been chosen previously by God to be a part of his family, to be a part of his household, to be a part of his kingdom. You are not a part of this world. You're in this world. We are in this world together as believers, but we are not of this world. Then the recipients of this letter, as I said, were under persecution for their faith. And it was easy for people, for them to think, and it can be easy for us when we face persecution because of our faith, that, you know, um, we've been abandoned. Where's God? We live in a world today where people are losing their jobs because they refuse to take a particular medical decision upon themselves. And they have reasons, and some have religious reasons to say, I don't agree with this. And, okay, great, you can't pay your bills anymore. You can't pay rent. You can't feed your kids. You can't, you're, you're, you're to be relegated to this place in society where, where just, just, just go away and die. I'm exaggerating slightly, but the attitude is very much dismissive. And you could think, if you find yourself in those types of situations, where's God? Or as we look at just the world in general and how it's getting darker and more wicked and, 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 the, and more perverse things are being treated as normal. I was just reading a thing the other day, you know, and, and, and it's not new, but, but around the country, the books and stuff that are getting into grade school libraries that are being hailed as wonderful stories of and they're, and they're pornography. It's it's straight-up disgusting pornography, and yet the world is going, oh, what a wonderful story that fourth graders need to read. God, where are you? What's going on? Right? It's easy for us to think these types of things. But Peter wanted his readers to know, and he wants us to know, and God wants us to know through Peter, and it was meant to bring an incredible amount of comfort to us that everything here that is happening, that is in this world, is temporary. It is temporary. You were picked by God long ago to be a part of his family. He is your dad. He is your Abba Father. And hang on to that. It's important that them and us understand this, and that's why I think Peter just starts right out, right? He doesn't give along, how you doing, how are the kids, you know, how, how's the car? He's like, look, we're going to get right to this chosen thing, right? Deep theology. Now, it's interesting for Peter, I believe this truth, he, I believe he got it early on and it was life-changing for him. You know, Peter, you go back into the Gospels and you read Peter was, was brought, you know, hey, we found the Messiah, here's Jesus. And Peter made a choice to follow Jesus, Right? But then in John 15, 16, Jesus comes to his disciples and he tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I can imagine Peter going, wait, what? Like I, I distinctly remember Jesus pretty vividly this day in Galilee where I made a choice. I chose to follow you. I made a decision. And now you're, you're saying, you chose me? I, 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 I don't understand. 
But I believe throughout Peter's life, and we don't have record of when he had an aha moment, but here as he's writing this, I believe Peter understood this world-shaking truth. I believe this truth changed his life, changed his world, and changed his thinking. That, yeah, you know, Jesus did choose me long ago. God chose me. It's such an important foundational truth, and it bolts us to Jesus Christ, and it's so important that he opens his letter with it. He brings it up again in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, you have been chosen, and you are precious to God, a royal priesthood. He says it again. It's like the idea that God chose you, even though we have moments where we're like, well, didn't I choose Jesus, is like going into a store or a restaurant, and you distinctly remember, no, I was sitting at home, and I said, I'm going to go to that store. And you got in your car, and you drove to that store, and you walk in, and they go, hi, Mr. Henry, we've been expecting you. Wait, what? It's a shocking truth. But the Bible teaches very clearly that God chose those who believe in him before time began. In the Old Testament, Israel is called God's chosen or God's elect 13 different times. In the New Testament, Christians are called God's chosen or God's elect. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it has this beautiful description. It says this, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is a biblical truth, that God chose you in advance. God chose you before you were born to undergo a process, a process of changing you to become more and more in your heart, in your personality, and in your character just like Jesus Christ. That's what that verse in Romans just said. So when we're in the middle of trial and persecution and we're like, oh no, what's going on? Stop and remember, this is not my home. And God chose me. I'm his kid. I'm his kid. He chose me. Now the issue, obviously, is this brings up a debate that has been going on for thousands of years at this point, right? And the debate is this. If God chose us, well then how did we choose him? And if I chose him, how did he choose me? Right? If, if God chose me to, to be saved before the foundations of the world, then, then what, what was that moment where I said, Jesus, I believe in you. I, I Forgive me my sins come into my life. What, what, what's up with that? The debate is about God's election and predestination versus our free will and our ability to choose. And the Bible teaches both. That God is sovereign. God is outside of time. God knows all things, sees all things. God chose us before the foundations of the world, but it also teaches that he gave us a free will, the ability to go, no. And the ability to go, yes. We can't argue these truths because Scripture is so clear about both of them. Scripture is clear that God chose from eternity who would be saved, but Scripture is also very clear when it says, choose you this day who you will serve. Talking to us. The Bible says things that, that, that we are told to repent and believe in Jesus. We are told to accept Christ. If anybody believes in Christ, they are saved. The question that people have is, did God choose me or did I choose God? The answer is yes. 
what? Did I choose God or did God choose me? Yes. That's the answer. Both are true. Yes, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Yes, we've been elected by him. Yes, we were predestined to be conformed to the image of a son before we even existed. The Bible tells us that he knew us in his mind by name, the hairs on our head, all these wonderful details about us before we even existed. The Bible says that God is outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees your whole life. He sees all the decisions that you've, you haven't made yet. He sees our whole life. Yes, God chose us. But some struggle with that because they say, if that's true, then why do we ask people to choose Christ? Why do we evangelize? Why do we try and get people to come to the place of saying yes to Jesus through, through gospel tracts, through evangelistic outreaches, through conversation? Why do we ask people to make a decision to follow him? And I believe it's because it's, it's, and you see this in all of these scriptures when you time together, that it's our faith that works in cooperation with God's election. There's, there's something that takes place there where God chose us about before the foundation of the world, but there's also the free will place where we say, I choose you, God. And there's a cooperation that happens between these things. It's our faith, our choice, our, our decision to accept Jesus that's working in cooperation with God's election that happened before we were even born. Now, you might say, I don't really get that. Theologians have been arguing about this for centuries. They don't get it either. They don't fully understand how this works, but, but let me try and paint a picture. Imagine a person that is drowning and a rope is thrown out to them. The rope alone cannot save them. The man has to grab for the rope or they'll drown. They have to grab for the rope. But even if they grab the rope and the rope is just sitting there by itself, not secured to anything, it's not enough. There has to be someone on the shore who throws the rope out. There has to be someone pulling that person back in with the rope. And so God, by his choosing, throws the rope out to us. I choose you for salvation. And he throws the rope out to us. And he's the one that pulls it in. We, by our free will, have the opportunity to say, I'm going to grab the rope or I'm not going to grab the rope. But in the picture, the biblical picture, Genesis to Revelation, we always see that in all of this, God is always the one who makes the first move. God is the al always the one who initiates. He's the one who moves towards us. He's always the one who makes the first choice. And it's always us who respond to his movement first. 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he first loved us. And so instead of wrestling with this and struggling with it, and, oh, is, is it Calvinist? Is it Arminianist? Is it? My recommendation is just accept it. I think part of the foolishness of man is to think that unless I can understand the mind of God and why he did what he did and how he makes it work, unless my pitiful little dumb brain can figure it out, I can't accept it. Well, if your God is that tiny, that he has to be understood by you, I guarantee he can't save you either. God Almighty's ways are higher than our ways. The Bible says his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is okay to be people who say, God, I don't understand everything you do, but your word teaches it, and so therefore I believe it. We have a free will that God gave us, but he also has a sovereignty that operated outside of time. 
And in God's plan and purpose, they work together. But if you're really struggling with it and you're thinking, you know, I'm not a believer in Jesus, you know, today, and well, what if God didn't choose me? Accept Jesus right now and you'll find out that God chose you. That's how it works. Or reject Christ until the day you leave this earth and die and you'll find out that you weren't chosen. But that's not what God wants. God's thrown out that rope to every living soul that has existed on this earth for all time and says, reach out and grab the rope because I chose you. And it's our job to respond in faith to that work. Now, Peter didn't write this. He didn't open his letter in verse 2 with this so his readers would get this and go, what? And get into a big argument about free will versus election. He didn't write this so they would get into this doctrinal argument and divide all the fellowships. He wrote this to encourage them. He wrote this to comfort them. And knowing God chose us is the first bolt that secures us to the foundation of Christ. We are his kids. We are part of his family. We are part of his kingdom. Everything here is temporary. And so when you're dealing with the trials and you're dealing with the storms and you're dealing with the persecution and the difficulty, remember, this is not your home. And God has not abandoned you because he chose you. Now, the second truth that bolts us to our foundation is that we are completely known by God. He closes verse 1 and into verse 2. He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's how we were chosen. Now, that word foreknowledge there, it's a Greek word. We get our English word prognosis from this. You guys heard that word prognosis? Hey, doctor, what's the prognosis, right? What are you asking when you ask the doctor for a prognosis? Well, that word prognosis is when a doctor is going to predict or determine the, the progression of a disease or an ailment in your life, right? What's the prognosis, doctor? This is terminal. You got six months to live. This word foreknowledge refers to God's omniscient wisdom. Omniscience means he knows everything and he knows all things. It refers to his omniscient wisdom and his intention. See, it's important for us to know that God knows everything. He sees everything in advance. Everything that happens is not a surprise to God. It's everything that, that, that is done, that happens, that takes place, God is fully aware of. And this is important because when you get into this whole, did God choose me or did I choose him thing? And, and, and well, if you get hung up on the fact that, you know, oh, God chose. Well, what was the criteria that he chose, right? right? Is, is there a checklist? Is there some way I could kind of align myself with this checklist? You know, did, did, he, did he say, well, it's the family you were born in and that's why I chose you. It's the place you grew up in, the city you lived in. Well, God in his foreknowledge, I think, factored everything into it factored everything, everything we can imagine and more. God's knowledge is limitless. I mean, think of a comparison between his knowledge and ours. Man's knowledge is sadly and severely lacking compared to the knowledge of God. All of our knowledge, everything we know as mankind is accumulated knowledge. It's knowledge we've accumulated through study, through learning, through long research, right? It's, it's knowledge that is added to by our own, you know, human experience, and it's subject to deterioration, right? This is the knowledge of man. God's knowledge, however, is immediate, complete, comprehensive, and never and can't deteriorate. 
God never has to research. He never has to Google anything. He never looks up Wikipedia, Wikipedia to learn anything. God never has to string one logical thought together with another logical thought to come up with, you know, some, some, some result from critical thinking. God doesn't have to do anything. He just knows everything. That's omniscience. God is never and never will go, wow, I didn't know that. It can't happen. His knowledge is all-encompassing. You can't tell God anything that he doesn't already know, and he never forgets. Never forgets. I mean, think about that. How much stuff have you forgotten over the years, right? I took trig in high school, and then two years later, it was like, oh, I'm going to college. Oh, I took trig. Easy peasy. It's a foreign language. Two years later, right? Years of math in high school. What do I remember? A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Not 100% sure what that means either. We learn stuff and then we forget. I mean, we've forgotten more things than we're ever going to learn at this point in some of our lives. Our knowledge is so limited, but, but God's knowledge. It says this in Psalms chapter 139, verses um, 1 and 2. He says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. That last part of the phrase there, you understand my thoughts from far away, you can reword it as you know what I'm going to think before I think it. Before the chemical electrical signal fires off in your brain, is sent from the synapse to the neuron, before that even happens, God already knows what you were going to think. Jesus displayed this kind of foreknowledge. Remember when he sent his disciples to Bethany? He knew that they would find a donkey waiting for them to take Jesus into Jerusalem. He knew when they walked into Jerusalem, they would see and find a man carrying a pitcher of water that would lead them to the upper room. He knew it. He told them in advance it would happen. He already knew. Jesus knew what people were thinking, right? You go through the New Testament and the Gospels and you find constantly, it says, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, over and over and over, right? Can you imagine how uncomfortable it would be to hang with someone like that? You're sitting somewhere with Jesus. Somebody walks by and you look and you have a wrong thought and you glance over and Jesus is like, uh-huh. I know what you're thinking. Again, Peter is writing this to encourage and to comfort his readers. And so what is the comfort and encouragement that comes from this truth that God knows? One, God knows the situation. God knows how it's going to resolve itself. God knows how it's going to turn out. God knows what you need in it. God knows what you're, what you're dealing with going through it. But, but, but this point really stuck out to me as I was thinking about this. If God knows everything, and he does, he already knows the worst about you. He already knows the worst about you, and he loves you anyways. In human relationships, the people oftentimes have a, have a fear Right, that when they, when they get to know the real me, they'll reject me, right? You know, and so we learn to hide. We, we, we put our best face on, our best foot forward. We make sure we say the right, proper things, right? There's a whole, you know, dating process. And, and sure, you want to make a good impression and all this stuff, but sometimes it, it, it just, we, we, we can hide under this illusion, this fear that, you know, if, if they know me for who I really am, they won't love me. If they know my deepest, darkest, just perverse secrets, 
They won't love me. They'll reject me. But God already knows the worst about you, and he loves you anyways. He knows the worst thing that you haven't done yet. That might be the worst thing you will ever do. He already knows. And he still sent his son to the cross to die for you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I read a quote somewhere today, and I didn't write it down, but it was like, you know, I'm glad. It says, I'm glad God chose me before I was born, because I don't think he would have after. (laughs) He knows the best about us as well. Like Peter, he sees our potential and what we can be, and he wants to pour into that. He knows our heart. He knows our motives. He, he knows if we have good and pure intentions. You know, and at times in life, we've all done this. We try our best. We, we try and do the right thing, and we fail, right? We, we stumble and we fall. And sometimes when that happens in our lives, the people around us, um, they only see the failure, Right? They, they don't see the motivation behind what you were trying to do, or they don't see the effort you put in. And, and sometimes we find ourselves in situations, no matter, no matter what our best intention was, people still judge us or criticize us for failing. And, 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 but God knows the whole story. He knows what's in your heart and why. 1 John chapter 3 says this. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Even when our own heart is saying, you blew it, you, you fail, you're a horrible person, you're just, he knows all things. So God knows you at your worst already. He knows you at your failure and he still loves you anyways. And to the readers that Peter is writing to, He's building this thought. Look, you've been chosen before time by God. He knows you completely, thoroughly, and he loves you anyways. He chose you before time began, knowing everything you were going to do, good and bad. Let that comfort you. The third truth that bolts us to our foundation is that we are constantly growing because of God. Again, look at the end of verse 1 into verse 2. It says, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here is the one who chose you, the one who knows you completely and still loves you anyways, is also the one that will help you grow and mature constantly. It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit active in our lives. That word sanctifying is a very churchy type of word, right? It's not really a word we use in our everyday conversation, do we? You know, when's the last time you called up your friend and you said, hey, have you been sanctified today? We, we don't use that word in our everyday speech, but, but it's a good word to know. It's a very important biblical word to know because um, what it means is to be marked as different or to be set apart or to be made holy. God is in the process of making you and me holy people. Now, holiness doesn't mean perfect, right? I was just talking to a friend today that was like, look, I got a question. He's been walking with the Lord for years, and he's like struggling with this one particular sin that he's like, I just feel like I can't get out of it. And every time I feel like I'm having victory, I fall back in it, and, and, you know, and basically he's like, what the heck? <laughs> that was his question, you know? And, uh, and we had this great conversation about, you know, 
I mean, nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that you and I are going to be perfect here on this side of heaven. That doesn't mean let's go out and sin. But the Bible nowhere says that, that, that we're going to be perfect here. And so sometimes you get caught up in striving for that, right? Striving for perfection here on earth. Paul wrote a whole thing in Romans that said, look, my spirit that is born again and made alive still coexists here with my fallen flesh. And it's a struggle. And I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. And, and what is the answer? And, and his answer, you go read it in Romans, he just said, thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God that Jesus died on the cross, forgave all of my sins. Thank you, God, for choosing me, and in me choosing Christ, I've been sprinkled with his blood, and the Holy Spirit has entered my life, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me, and all the nonsense that takes place in my life here. The struggles, the stumbles, the falls. I'm so thankful God made advance payment for my salvation. Holiness means that you're being changed. Holiness means that you were being made into something that is different than who you were before. Holiness means becoming a more obedient person. You'll see it there. It's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient. God, I want to obey you then get out of the way and let God work through your life that you will become a holy and obedient person to God. And that's a hard one for people to wrap their heads around. Because our obedience or disobedience ultimately is a choice. It's an act of our free will to say, God, I'm going to choose to be obedient to you. But sometimes that choice to be obedient to God is not us in our own effort going, I'm resisting the sin. It's saying, God, I'm going to throw myself on your grace and mercy. Please, Holy Spirit, empower me to say no to this. I don't want this to control my life. I would love for our lives here on earth to be sin-free, but it doesn't seem to be the case. First, John deals with that issue. He goes, look, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But then later on, he goes, he who practices sin doesn't know God. <laughs> you're like, what? One of them contradictions. No, it's not. There's a difference between stumbling and falling and going, oh my gosh, why did I do that? I have remorse. I, God, I, I'm sorry. I don't want to, please forgive me. God, help me to not. There's a difference between that and doing what God says not to do and going, it's fine. There's no problem. It's not wrong. There's a difference between saying, look, I am struggling with an attraction that I know is not biblically supported. I'm struggling with that. There's a difference between saying I struggle, but I'm not going to partake, and someone who goes, no, we're just going to change the Bible to embrace the lifestyle I want. There's a difference. There's a difference. In the process of sanctification, of us being changed, it says there to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. I believe Peter was using a metaphor here um, that his Jewish readers would specifically recognize immediately. Because in Exodus 24, you read the story of Moses bringing the law to the people, right? He's bringing the law to the people. And we have this whole story about how they slaughter some oxen and they get the basins and they pour the blood in the basins and he dips something in it and he sprinkles the blood all over them. Then as you read through all the, the temple sacrifices and stuff, right? There's just blood everywhere. It's just a very bloody type of observation of uh, uh, expression of religion, right? 
But there was blood sprinkled on this and blood sprinkled on that. But in that story in Exodus 24, he sprinkles the people with blood. And as he sprinkles them with the blood, he says this, the blood is the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The blood was a tangible demonstration that two parties, God and the people, were entering into a binding agreement, a covenant. You could think of it like a wax seal. You could think of it like the notarized signature. But there's a, a bigger, deeper meaning because the sin that, 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 that God deals with in our lives, it had to be paid for by the blood of Christ. I and mean, we don't have time to get into all that symbolism, but the point is, is that in the process of sanctification of God growing and maturing you, it's the process of God empowering us to honor the covenant that has been made when we received Christ as our Lord and Savior. I know many of you and myself have, have experienced that, that time in our life where we're like, I don't think I could ever stop doing that. Something that, you know, God wants me to stop. I don't think I could ever stop it. And the harder you try to stop it, you can't. But when you make the decision to say, I'm going to yield myself to Christ, I'm going to yield myself to him, I'm going to get into his word, I'm going to let, let his Holy Spirit saturate me, that your heart changes. And you find yourself having victory over things you never thought you would have victory over. It's the growth. It's the maturity. And it's a work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And the more we grow, the more we mature, the more we live obedient to God's word, the more we live obedient to God's will, we're going to find ourselves having victory when the storms come, to be able to, to resist the temptations that, that come against us. We're going to find ourselves being able to stand strong when the persecution comes. So his chain of thought here is God picks you, God knows you, God grows you. But did you notice the reference to the Trinity here in this verse? Right? You have God the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have Jesus Christ, all three mentioned in the work of securing us. The Father foreknows and chooses, the Son cleanses us by his blood shed on the cross, and the Spirit then sets us apart, changes us, and makes us holy. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. But I read this quote, quote from uh, Leighton Ford. He was uh, an associate of Billy Graham, and he said, God loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. And so there's a process that God is doing the work of changing us and molding us and shaping us in our lives. Yeah, there's a free will choice to say, God, I'm going to yield to you, and God, I'm going to get into your word. And You know, there's a choice to do those things, but it's God is the, is the one that's changing our hearts. It's God who's empowering you to live for him and to serve him and to, 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 to do what he's wanting you to do. And we, we all come to Christ the same way with all of our baggage, right? God doesn't say, clean up your life, then come to me. He knows we can't clean up our life. And so he's like, will you just please come to me so I can clean you up? And he accepts us. And then he begins that process of cleaning us. And, and this is not an optional part of the deal. Right? It's not really a process of, well, I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior and everything. But yeah, that Holy Spirit changing me and sanctifying me. I don't, want, I don't want none of that. If you're truly saved, you're going to be truly changed. It'll be a process. It'll be a struggle. It'll be a development, but you will be changed. And it's critical to know this because holiness 
is a requirement for God. In Leviticus 11.44, it says, You must consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, in case you go, oh, that's the Old Testament, that doesn't apply anymore. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, For this is God's will, your sanctification. There's not a whole lot of places in Scripture where we're told exactly what the will of God is, right? That's one of the most popular questions for a Christian. What's God's will in my life? You know? But right here, this is God's will, your sanctification. God wants us to be holy. He wants you to be holy. He wants me to be holy. He wants his church to be holy. And we have to be to see the Lord. And I am so thankful that God says, Nathan, let me do the work. Just trust me. Let me do the work. Because if it was up to me to be holy, I'd mess the whole deal up in five minutes. God is so gracious. But how do you know if you're holy? How do I know if this sanctification is happening in my life? Well, it's simple. Do you live differently than you did before? Do you talk differently? Do you treat people differently? Are you being unselfish instead of selfish? Are you being more patient instead of lacking patience? Do you hate what God hates? Do you love what God loves? It doesn't mean you won't ever stumble, you won't ever fall, you won't ever sin. We all struggle with sin, right? But the difference is when you do stumble and fall, holiness means your reaction will be remorse. means your reaction will be a desire to change. God, I don't want this in my life. I'm so sorry. Help me. You'll love righteousness. You'll pursue righteousness. So faith is the root of holiness, but obedience is the fruit of holiness. The fourth and final bolt that secures us to our foundation is that we are increasingly blessed because of God. Look at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now you read that and you might go, oh, that's just the introduction to the letter, right? You know, they, all the writers do this. You know, grace and peace to you. But it's more than that. I, I believe it's expressing the experience that Peter believes his readers will experience through applying these truths into their lives. You know, in, in all the letters where the greeting, this greeting is used, you, know, you go through all the New Testament letters and stuff, grace and peace are always in the same order. It's always grace and peace. It's never peace and grace. Why is that? Well, I believe it's, you could, uh, it's because you could never experience the peace of God until you have experienced the grace of God. It's a part of the process. Grace is God's undeserved favor towards us. When he says, I'm going to grant you salvation, I'm going to throw that rope out to you, you didn't deserve it. As a matter of fact, you probably deserve to drown. You actually deserve to die in your sin because you've broken the law. You're a guilty criminal. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's just who you are through and through. Your very DNA is wicked. But I love you anyways. So I'm going to throw the rope out to you. Just grab it. I'll pull you up. 
I'll do the work. I'll work in your life. I'll change you. Undeserved favor towards us. And that undeserved favor from God in our lives results in us having peace. It results in us being able to have peace when everything's falling apart. It results in us having the peace to say, you know what? I just, I'm, God's in control. If you have no peace in your life, it could, because you, could be because you haven't yet experienced God's grace. But having experienced God's grace and salvation and through just the ongoing sanctification of the Holy Spirit, we experience over and over the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's why it says there may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There was once a hurricane in Florida, once, right? Devastated entire communities, right? Everything was knocked down, but there was this one house in this one devastated wrecked area that was still standing. And the reporter found the man out in the front yard cleaning up his front yard, right? Everything's wrecked. He's cleaning his front yard. And the reporter says, why is your house still standing when all the others have been wiped out? He goes, I don't know why the others were wiped out, but I can tell you that when I built my house, I built it according to the very strict Florida building code. And when it told me to use a certain type of truss that was more expensive, I did. I followed the building plan. And I was told that if I built my house according to the Florida building code, it could withstand a hurricane. Well, I did, and it did. God has given us a building code. He has given us the plans of how to build our life. And the question for all of us is, are you building your life according to these truths? Are you staking your life on these truths that God chose you? That God knows you? That God grows you and God will continue to bless you. When we stand on those truths and use those truths to bolt us close to Jesus Christ, we can't help but to find our life better. Not without difficulty, but full of grace and full of peace. And are you letting these truths be the bolts that secure you to the foundation of Christ? I mean, sure, the foundation is amazing, right? Jesus Christ, God the Son, perfect and righteous. But if you're not bolted in with certain truths, if you are not bolted close to him, a storm can come and shift you right off at any time. And so these truths, let them hold you tight to Christ. Let them tie you down to that foundation so that you will have a secure and a stable and a strong life despite what comes your way. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. Lord, we ask that you would keep blessing us, Lord. God, there may be things in in the realm of theology and doctrine that we don't fully understand, but God, your word is true. It is your word. And because, God, this is your word and these are your truths, God, they are true, they are non-negotiable, they are undeniable. And, God, it is so important for us to know that you chose us. You looked across time and eternity and said, I want that person in my family. And in all of us, God, we just fill in our name right there. That they would be my child, that they would be able to just come to me at any time and ask, and I, and I will listen, and, and, I, and I will answer and and do what's best for them because they are my kid and I love them so desperately. And God, you chose us. 
And Lord, if there's anybody listening in this room or online that is unsure, they know they've never chosen God, and well, did God choose me? God, I pray in this very moment, Lord, that you would move on their hearts, that they would just exercise their free will and cooperation with your Holy Spirit to just say, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And that God, as the story says, that they would pass through a threshold that on one side says if anyone would believe. But as they pass through that doorway and they turn and they look, above the door it now says, chosen before the foundations of the world. That God, we would trust in your word and your will. God, that we would cling to the truth that you know us. And you still love us. We're your kids. God, that you're doing the work of sanctifying us and making us holy. And so, God, may we stop fighting you on that work, but God, instead, just yield. Let you do that work in our hearts and lives, Lord, that we would become holy people. And that, God, we would receive the multiplying blessings, the peace that surpasses all understanding because we have received the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, the blood of Christ has been poured out over our lives, cleansing us of all sin. And we thank you, God. We are so humbled by that. We know we don't deserve it. But God, you did it because you love us. Thank you. We pray, God, that you continue to bless our lives and use us, Lord, to be lights to those that don't, don't yet know you. God, that we would take very seriously our walk with you, God, and be disciples who grow more obedient day by day. And that through that, God, you would just use us to have a great effect in the world around us. That revival would come as your spirit just goes forth and changes lives. We thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's worship.